so the problem I think the United States has is that it's how it's trying to get China to change. China does have to change. There's people in China who recognize they have to change that you can't rely on intellectual property theft and forced technology transfers. And what Donald Trump has failed to do is to build a coalition against that, to work with those even in China who want to make those change, put pressure in multilaterally. And so instead you get this cold war starting and people lose track of the fact that our economies are intertwined. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. The voice you just heard is that of Steve Oaken, political pundit and senior advisor for McClarty Associates. For years now, and with each new U.S. political cycle, Steve steps up to offer an outside-in view of how things are shaping up. Understanding how politics influence Asia commerce is his forte. Every four years, U.S. presidential elections roll around, and Americans are asked to pick a candidate who best represents their needs and ideals. Breadbasket issues like jobs, the economy, and health care top the list. Foreign policy? Well, it barely ranks. In most cases, it doesn't even make the top ten. It should not, therefore, come as a surprise that as the U.S. enters this political season, America's engagement with Asia won't receive as much as a mention. The only exception, of course, is China. Every politician needs a boogeyman, and this time around, it's the Middle Kingdom. Or as, no doubt, it will be characterized in political ads and stump speeches as the red threat rising in the East. It's the kind of rhetoric that politicians like to bandy about. It's good for public morale, they might argue, but it has little bearing on the outcome of an election. So why do it? To address this question and more, I sat down with Steve to discuss the things that motivate U.S. voters, the perceived importance of Asia, and how, if at all, a Biden presidency might engage differently with China. Steve Oaken, it's a pleasure to have you back on Inside Asia. Thanks for being here. Always great to be with you, Steve. <laughs> we, we are together. Yeah. We are not in lockdown. We're not on Zoom. We're actually face-to-face, -face, and uh, you look healthy, so uh, thanks for being here. Um, today, we're going to talk about uh, the run-up to the U.S. elections and foreign policy and how or why it figures in the U.S. political process. Uh, are you good for that? Absolutely. Ready to go. All right. Let, let, let's start with an opening uh, around where Asia has ranked for the U.S. voter over the past 30 years. Does Asia figure into the, the debate in the U.S.? Do, do voters actually think that foreign policy plays an important role in the decisions they make on their presidential candidates? Generally, no, and there's a reason for that. Because if you go, you know, let's say from Franklin Roosevelt in World War II all the way up through the end of Bill Clinton and in the beginning of, of George W. Bush, there was no democratic foreign policy versus a Republican foreign policy. There was only one foreign policy. America had uh, a saying, you know, politics stops at the border. And so who you voted for president didn't matter from a foreign policy perspective because that president was going to work multilaterally. They were going to lead in those organizations like lead in NATO, lead in the WTO, um, lead in the WHO, lead in the United Nations. And it is only recently that there's been a split in the parties of how foreign policy counts. So it never had to be uh, a part of the election before. So there was an expectation that the president will do his duty in the foreign arena. 
Well, not only that he would do his duty, but that a Democratic or Republican administration wouldn't be that different. I had a friend who told me, you know, they have the Shangri-La dialogue here in, in Singapore. And you could hear, you could read a speech from a Secretary of Defense with his name off it, and you couldn't tell the difference if it was a Republican Secretary of Defense or a Democratic one. They were all the same speeches about what we needed to do. And even with Trump's first Secretary of Defense, Mattis, and even really with Esper now, they're still pretty much aligned in the traditional American foreign policy. Clearly, President Trump is not. So all of this has changed. Uh, the, the, the pieces on the, on the chessboard have shifted dramatically. What does this mean in this upcoming election? Are we now going to see more attention paid to what's happening outside U.S. borders or less? Well, Donald Trump wants more attention paid because if the election of a, pre of a president, you know, their re-election, is typically going to be a referendum on that president. And with, you know, hopefully not, but maybe 200,000 Americans dead by election day, with the economy in, which, in recession, with unemployment in double digits, Trump loses. Trump needs to pivot. He needs to make this election a choice between him and Biden. He thinks it's good for him to make the election in part about China, and so he's gonna do his best to make that happen. May not work, but he's gonna try. Mm. What are some, I mean, we've seen some of the things he's done recently. Um, uh, most recently, the shutting down of the uh, of, of the consulate in, in Houston, and then the re reciprocation with uh, closing down in Chengdu. Are we gonna see more of this tit for tat in the next 100 days? Well, it may even be more than that, because what you have now is the alignment of the political interest and the hawks in the Trump administration coming together. It used to be that the political interest was to see the economy go forward. And to do that, you needed China's help. You needed China to buy those goods under the phase one trade deal. So the political people in the Trump administration were, you can't be that hawkish on China, even though the hawks, you know, led by a, a Peter Navarro, you know, uh, wanted to see more action or, or Secretary Pompeo. But now that the politics line up to be tough on China, and the policy lines up with the hawks to be tough on China, you're going to see probably even more aggressive actions against China, not, you know, beyond the closing of the consulate in Houston. Yeah. It's, it's boogeyman politics, isn't it? It's creating that, that demon on the other side of the Pacific and then creating an idea that, you know, it's something that we need to be uh, guarding against. Yet, you know, it, it's strange to me, Steve. I mean, you and I have both been here in the region a long time. We know that the U.S. and Chinese economies are deeply intertwined. Um, a U.S. corporations have been offshoring their manufacturing to China for years, which in fact has benefited the American consumer and lower per unit costs and lower consumer goods. Why isn't that narrative being played out in the U.S. to help people understand that, in fact, to some degree, they're better off, at least on the consumer front. Well, what, what Trump is correct on is that China has not played by the rules. China has not lived up to its commitments. You know, and there's all this talk about, you know, the U.S. becoming self-reliant and the U.S. bringing manufacturing back home. China's been talking about that for a decade. China did that with its indigenous innovation policy. China did that in, with its Made in China 2025 policy, which came out in 2015, certainly predates Donald Trump. 
So the problem I think the United States has is that it's how it's trying to get China to change. China does have to change. There's people in China who recognize they have to change that you can't rely on intellectual property theft and forced technology transfers. And what Donald Trump has failed to do is to build a coalition against that, to work with those even in China who want to make those change, put pressure in multilaterally. And so instead you get this cold war starting and people lose track of the fact that our economies are intertwined. So, Steve, to some degree, though, American corporations were complicit. I mean, they were well aware of these IP infringements and some of these other bad behavior and part of the Chinese government and uh, stealing technology and, uh, and, and, and bringing them into joint ventures and then walking away and setting up their own. I mean, it's on and on the list. But, but at the same time, there was this pressure from Wall Street to continue to drive quarterly results, which meant you had to be in China in order to create products at a lower per unit cost. So, so my, recogni- my recognition, my, my, my memory of this is that a lot of corporates would say, it's okay, we'll deal with this, we'll manage it, let's not ruffle the feathers of China. So is there no responsibility or accountability on part of the U.S. corporations for the situation we're in today? Well, you have to think of two things. First, for U.S. businesses, China is not an option. China is essential. It's potentially the largest market in the world. It may be their second largest market. So they are going to be in China. The second thing is that U.S. businesses had the same mentality that the U.S. government had, both Democrats and Republicans. And that is that we will engage with China. We will do business with China. We will invest in China. And China will change. China will become more like us. China will open up. China will will recognize the rules. China will become a, a, a player in multilateral organizations. That didn't happen. So to the same extent you can fault business, you have to fault the government at the same time. And it may not be China's fault that they didn't live up to, to the West's expectations. And maybe the West didn't shouldn't have had those expectations, but that is what the mentality was going in. That was the mentality when the U.S. business community, which I was part of, you know, advocating for China to enter the WTO at the end of the Clinton administration, it was, let's have China join us and engage with China and they will open up. We were all wrong. Yeah, it was a reasonable assumption. And it's not like we hadn't seen that happen in other parts of the world, like Taiwan, Korea, uh, you know, parts of Latin America. We could see that if you got the right energies and the right uh, economies moving in the right direction, you then saw a change in the political underpinning. But China's a big country. They have a long history. They have their own set of rules. They are a domestic market which can sustain itself to some degree and doesn't have to be as interdependent on the global economy. Um, we did get it wrong. And I think most of the China watchers uh, for the last, those that have been watching China for 30, 40 years, are all acknowledging they were, again, party to this. Now that it's clear and apparent that China is not going to become more like the U.S. or uh, free market democracies, what is the new strategy? And that brings us to Biden and the Biden platform on China. No, and that's exactly right. And where uh, what Biden will say is that, you know, Trump will say, I'm tough on China. And what Biden will say is, I will be tough, but effective on China. You have not been effective, you know, President Trump. You have used, you know, unilateral tariffs. You have taken, you know, tit for tat actions on technology and and diplomatically now. And where has it gotten us? It's gotten us nowhere. I am going to be tough, but I'm going to be effective because I am going to use multilateral organizations. I'm going to work with uh, 
the you know Japanese and the Australians and the Singaporeans and the EU, and that's the way I'm going to do it. And so, if if look, there's a consensus in the United States that China is not um, uh, living up to its commitments. That you could even say China is is now a competitor, if not an enemy, uh, of the United States. And so the question is, who's going to be better at dealing with them? And that's the argument Biden's going to make. I'm going to be the one who's going to be better at it, but I recognize the reality the same as you do. So in, in a bit, it's back to that engagement policy. Engage China, um, use multilateral, uh, come up with policies and approaches that are mutually beneficial uh, versus unilateral. Uh, but but it sounds to me like that's a lot of what Clinton did and, and Obama and others. And yet we arrived where we are today, which is in a bit of a muddle. Uh, what would be different or what does um, practical change look like, in your opinion, uh, from the conversations you've had with the Biden team? Well, if you look at it, the, the shift really started to come with the Obama administration with the pivot to Asia and the, the underpinning of that was the TPP, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And that is where President Obama said, we are going to work with like-minded countries to build a multilateral framework when it comes to setting the architecture for trade for the 21st century, and it's going to be our rules. And China is either going to be outside or they're going to play by, and or they're going to be welcome in and they're going to be playing by our rules. You know, Trump got out of TPP on day three of his administration, and he has said, I am going to use the strength of the United States um, to bully China into accepting what we want to have them do. And that didn't work. The Biden administration is going to go back to that multilateral. Unclear if they can go back to the TPP because of the damage done to the U.S. economy uh, by the by the coronavirus and and the the lack of standing of China in the United States today. Um, it is extremely unpopular with both parties. So Biden will go back to where Bi where, where Obama left off, but he's not going to be able to go back as much. It's going to take time. Mm. As Biden establishes his foreign policy platform going forward, will he attempt, in your opinion, to frame uh, Asia in a broader context? In other words, it's not just China. There's other aspects to Asia. There are other opportunities. There are other partners to be thinking about. Uh, or is it by virtue of the fact that China is so present and, and such an issue in the campaign, people will think of Asia and therefore think of China only? No, I mean, I think... That, like, in a part, that's what the, you, you hear elements of that from the Trump administration. You hear them talking about, you know, the Indo-Pacific strategy. We don't know what that is, and it, they don't seem to have done much with it. But certainly, you do want, you want to work with India. You want to work with Japan. You want to work with Australia. You want to build much stronger relations with ASEAN um, than we have now. You want to have your president come to APEC meetings. You want to have your president come to ASEAN meetings and East Asia meetings. We'll see if travel allows that, unfortunately. Uh, it might not. But that's certainly the approach that, that uh, a Biden administration would take, which is the same approach that the Obama administration took. But it's going to do it with a reality. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a reality that China is a competitor, but we have to coexist with China. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know that the Trump administration thinks we have to coexist with China, or certainly the hawks in the Trump administration don't necessarily think we have to coexist, but we do. Mm. Yeah, I, th I think there's a clear demarcation where they're saying, you know, let's do it alone, uh, bring manufacturing back, uh, become self-reliant our technologies, uh, create barriers for China purchasing or buying any of our strategic technologies. There's, there's all of this rhetoric. There's no mystery, I think, in terms of what they would like to have happen. The real question is what's possible, which, which again brings us back to the U.S. voter to some degree. And, and the fact that so many seem not to fully understand the level of integration and therefore the important interdependence that exists there in order for us to continue to thrive globally. H how do you think or, or do you think that there's any willingness or are there members of the Biden team that say, let's rewrite this narrative fundamentally instead of just let's go back to normalcy, right, which still doesn't feel like an effective policy from what we've seen happen and the fact that China didn't become what we wanted to become. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think first we need to know where we're going to be come January of, of, of next year, because what the Trump administration seems to be doing right now is to try and have as many obstacles being placed in the way to break the relationship as much as it can between the U.S. and China so that when it, it can't get fixed, you're just not going to be able to open up that consulate back in Houston uh, right away. If you put heavy sanctions on technology companies, if you find that TikTok can't operate in the United States, it's going to be very tough for Biden to flip that switch. It's going to be impossible him for him to, to flip that switch. And so you had these four speeches, you know, that were just given where you had, you know, the Secretary of State, you had the Attorney General, you had the head of the National Security uh, uh, Agency, and, or, and you had the uh, FBI director all talk about what China was doing, why U.S. businesses shouldn't be cooperating with them, the espionage that they're undertaking. You've never heard that before. You never heard the FBI talk about China uh, as a threat. And so they're going to really try and do what they can to tie the hands of the incoming administration, because there is obviously the reality that some people get that Trump right now would lose if the election were today. Day, and so they're going to go much tougher over the next, you know, four or five months than they've gone maybe in the la in the first three and a half years. You know, a policy coordination is not the Trump administration's strong suit. It's fascinating to hear you talk like this because it does suggest that somebody is rolling out a plan uh, to to to, if you will, um, uh, upend any possible success that Biden might have, just the way that perhaps uh, the, the, the last uh, global financial crisis created such a situation for Obama. He spent his first term trying to unwind what had been done. Do you feel like there's some kind of parallel in those strategies? Just if we can't succeed, make sure they fail. Well, it, 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 I think you, you saw a balance with for the first three and a half years of the Trump administration between what I'll call the global, you know, other people call the globalists, you know, those who recognize we have to coexist with China, that um, we need to get China to change, but we also benefit from them purchasing um, our goods. And so you had people kind of in that category, you know, the Treasury Secretary, the USTR, um, and then you had the Hawks, you know, they had the Peter Navarros uh, of, of the world and the Mike Pompeos of the world. And you had somewhat of an equilibrium there with, with, with Trump in the middle. Now that the election is looking very bad for Trump, now that it's good politics to go after China as hard as you can, now that 
that there's a recognition this the, this may be a one-term president. Now the Hawks are in, in dominance. And so that's, I don't know if there's so much coordination anymore is that you've lost the equilibrium. And it is going to be tough for, for Biden and, and a new administration, if he were to win, to undo this, you know, in a span of a year or so. It, it is going to take some time. And the other thing that's going to take time is that foreign countries no longer, well, they say Trump's gone and Biden's in. It's not going to snap back you know, the status quo ante, they're going to say, well, how do we know that you're not going to get another populist who wins? How do we know that Kanye isn't going to be the president after President Biden? And or or maybe even worse for China, uh, Pompeo. And, you know, and, and, and worse for all the allies, because then we're back to this unilateral, you know, America first foreign policy. Yeah. And so it is going to take a long time, I think longer to bounce back. It's been argued that in some ways, you know, and we don't know, but uh, the, the Chinese leadership would prefer to see a Trump uh, come to power because he's so dysfunctional uh, and, and the way he's operating in the world creates a vacuum into which they hope to move. Well, what do you think of that? Well, what I don't understand is is why China right now isn't following um, the Biden uh, the Biden method for dealing with Trump in in terms of the campaign. And so, what is Biden doing? He's you know the, the first, when your opponent has a shovel and is digging themselves a hole, don't take the shovel away from him. <laughs> you don't. So, what is Biden doing? Let Trump go and say all of these you know crazy things. Let Trump turn off all of the voters. Let Trump give the mixed messages on the coronavirus. Let Trump you know you know give mixed messages on school openings because that only helps Biden. And so as much as Trump is damaging U.S. reputation and relationships in Asia, China is doing itself no favors with when it came out with the national security law in Hong Kong and, and how strict uh, and, and extraterritorial um, it was, what it's doing in India, what it's doing with Australia, what it's doing in the South China Sea. So China isn't taking advantage, as I see, as much as it could be of what Trump's doing, which is alienating all of the U.S. former allies. Mm. What's your greatest concern um, in in the run-up to the elections vis-a-vis uh, -vis Biden's uh, foreign policy and Asia policy? Are, are, do you have any concerns that he might just bow to the pressure and take a hardcore me-too approach? I, I think China is a threat and therefore undermine the possibility of reparations when, as and when uh, he wins? Well, I mean, I hope he, he stays with his, his principle, which is, Yes, I'm going to be tough but effective. I'm going to be tough and work uh, with our allies. He is not going to probably use the, the Hillary Clinton you know, terminology when she was Secretary of State of saying we're going to have a reset with Russia. It's not, we can't have a reset with China. The, the reality is there. So I don't think you'll, you'll hear him say we're going to reset China. He says we're going to have to be tough with them, but we're going to have to do it working with our allies. And there are things we're going to have to cooperate with them on. We're going to have to cooperate with them on the climate. We're going to have to cooperate with them uh, on the coronavirus uh, and future pandemics uh, in, in an effective way. How do we do those things? So I think that he is going to be relatively disciplined. I don't think you're going to see um, him getting too far out there because you want to keep this election, uh, election a referendum on Donald Trump if you're Joe Biden. And that is working right now. The polls keep getting better and better for Joe Biden. So why would you change that? What's interesting is the advice the, the Republican um, Senate committee 
so the National Republican Senatorial Committee, gave to senators who are running right now because Donald Trump is not popular and he's dragging down those Republican senators. And what they've said to those Republicans was, when you get a question about Trump, you pivot off Trump and you go hard on China. Mm. And so that is going to potentially make it much more difficult to get that, that recalibration that we need to, to right the ship with U.S.-China relations um, that we don't have. So it is going to be a very nasty uh, few months, you know, 99 or 98 days, however many we have now going into, into the election. Yeah. Who has who Biden gathered around himself uh, specific to Asia policy? Are there individuals that appear to be uh, making a show or, or starting to position themselves as likely uh, secretaries or, or advisors on Asia uh, should and when Biden win? Well, I mean, I don't know if the, you'd say who's who's going to be the next Secretary of State. Probably, you know, premature for that. But certainly, Susan Rice, um, you know, the the former National Security Advisor, uh, is is well thought of uh, on the career side. You know. Uh, uh, former Deputy Secretary of State Nicholas Burns is very well thought of. Jake Sullivan, who ran, you know, very from the Clinton days in in the the Clinton State Department, and and um, he's very well thought of. So it is really kind of that Democrat Democratic establishment foreign policy, which is you know we work multilaterally, um, you know we we work within institutions, and that. You look, everybody believes in America first. The question is, how do you put America first? You put America first by, by right, you know, you know, working with everybody, working with your allies and trying to change things for the better as opposed to going out on your own. And, and so you will see that traditional democratic foreign policy um, you know, with, with all of those people who are advising the Biden campaign. Yeah. Steve, you've been part of this uh, American business community in Asia for a long time now. Um, you've been a, a senior member and, and, and led the American Chamber of Commerce here in Singapore. And, and all the, the American chambers across the region, uh, you've had lots of opportunity to engage and have conversations with the American business community. What are they looking for? Are there any key issues that pop out, come up this election beyond China or including China? Or is it all China, in your opinion? No, I mean, I, I think it, and, and there's a, a couple of different ones. One is that there's a rising nationalism and populism everywhere. And so how do you make sure um, that when you have your manufacturing in a in a given country that, you know, local origin rules don't you know, knock you out of, of being able to sell in that country. So you have rising nationalism and populism. With the pandemic, you have, uh, you know, governments, they're losing so much money, losing so much tax revenue, they have to make new tax revenue. Where do they make that? They're going to make that. A lot of that is going to be on, on digital trade and digital taxes. Um, and it's almost impossible to operate if you're going to have a different regime in every country. Mm -hmm. And so how do you have a harmonized way of doing taxation? So there's a lot of issues that, that are on the, the forefront of business outside of China. In the, the, there's a, the, a big issue, of course, is, is supply chain diversification. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about a China plus one. So where do you move that supply chain? Because you stay, again, China is not an option. It's, it, it's essential to be able to do business there. But now you're worried more about how do you balance doing business in China and doing, balance, uh, doing business in the U.S. or elsewhere. Mm. You look what happened to the NBA mm. when they started to talk about Hong Kong. You know, they got hit in China and then they get hit in the United States. And so how do you balance what you're going to be able to do and not do? Um, you know, when it comes to having, you know, forced labor in your supply chain, that was, you know, an issue always uh, in, you know, South 
Asia, but you didn't worry about that so much as an issue in China. That's an issue in China now that's coming up. So there's so many more issues uh, on the table today outside of the U.S.-China uh, tensions. Yeah. Steve, um, as always, a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, let's revisit this post-election, find out how it all falls out uh, and whether or not we have a chance on, on rekindling interest in Asia. I think we will. Okay, thank you. Thanks for your time. My discussion with Steve raised a few questions and left me with a number of concerns as well. While anyone living outside the U.S. has clearly observed, the world has changed dramatically over the past 30 years. Yet, to a shocking degree, the U.S. perception of that world has not. I'm speaking specifically about the notion of U.S. hegemony and the lasting view that somehow the American way of life will imprint itself on all people beyond its borders. No doubt U.S. commercial prowess, technological achievements, and big brands have gone global, but they don't always leave the positive impression that Americans hope for. Americans are partial to their way of seeing things. Take the get tough approach, for instance. From my early days as a cub reporter in Washington, D.C. up to the present, I've been intrigued at the need for U.S. politicians to get tough on one issue or the other. Under Reagan, it was all about getting tough on drugs, which unleashed the memorable Nancy Reagan Just Say No campaign. Under Clinton, it was get tough on crime, which led to an egregious rise in incarcerations. The U.S. represents 4.4% of the global population, but it's also home to 22% of the world's prisoners. Shocking, right? With George W. Bush, it was all about getting tough on terrorism, which led to the misguided invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Talk about quagmires. All of these examples would seem to suggest that getting tough doesn't always work. So as we turn the corner and come into the last 100-day stretch before the U.S. election, do we really think getting tough on China is going to make a difference? All you have to do is look at the antics of U.S. politicians these past four years to see that bad behavior isn't the sole domain of the Chinese government. There's been plenty of bad behavior to go around, and it leaves me wondering, what has it really accomplished? As Steve points out in our discussion, in recent weeks there's been a concerted effort by the Trump administration to demonize China in new and creative ways, not because getting tough on China will win him votes, but because sabotaging any remnants of goodwill between the two countries is a way of making it harder for the next president to mend ties. That's cause for serious concern, especially when you consider that constructive interdependence between the U.S. and Chinese economies can do more for citizens of both nations and the world at large versus splitting one from the other. What would happen if a 40-year policy of constructive engagement fell by the wayside and the U.S. resorted to blaming China for all its woes? I can think of several unwanted effects, starting with a rise in the cost of consumer goods. Everything from cars to computers would start to go up as U.S. companies withdrew from China to rebuild manufacturing and supply chains in higher-cost locations. Then, of course, there's the financial uncertainty. China has accumulated U.S. debt over the past few decades and now owns over U.S. $1 trillion in U.S. treasuries. That's just 5% of the total U.S. debt owned by foreign countries, but still creates the kind of exposure that no one wants to see manipulated. It's not a stretch to imagine a humiliated China using that power to devalue the U.S. dollar or destabilize the U.S. economy. And what about technology? 
As we pointed out in earlier episodes, artificial intelligence is nothing to be trifled with. Like nuclear power, designed and unleashed on the world without collaboration and controls means placing in jeopardy prospects for the human race. Like the U.S.-Soviet nuclear arms race, do we really want to be in an AI race with the Chinese? I think not. So how about this? Trump will do what Trump does to incite American hatred of China. What if Joe Biden took another tact, rising above the rhetorical fray, sidelining the get-tough talk, and outlining a plan that holds China accountable, while offering explicit areas for joint cooperation? How outlandish would that be? The fact that it won't make a difference to the American voter makes it all the more reasonable, does it not? But this is American-style politics. And what's the point if you can't stick it to your nemesis, real or not? Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you're not already a loyal Inside Asia listener, please subscribe today. Search for Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts. It's entirely free, and there are over 140 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia on Asia. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.